0: Today on the Jade Ordi Podcast. More effrontery over at the White House, but this time it is internal. The Roger Stone case has been back in the headlines and only supplemented by Trump appointee Attorney General William Barr, who said that the president's tweets make it, quote, impossible for him to do his job. Has Barr been the highest ranking member in the upper echelons of the Trump administration to publicly speak out against the president? Also, we go back to 2020 land. New Hampshire's Democratic primary is over and the results are in. The billionaire candidates continue to spend. Joe Biden falls behind, while Sanders and Buttigieg lead in numbers. How do New Hampshire's results and this increased spending play into who will become the presidential nominee of the Democratic Party this year. We'll answer all that more on episode number 122 of the Jay Daugherty Podcast.
1: Jay Doherty Podcast. And now, broadcasting live from downtown Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty.
0: That's correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. It's episode number 122 of the Jay Doherty Podcast, Saturday, February 15th, 2020, a fresh 4.11 p.m. Thank you very much for being here. We're broadcasting live and recording here for the podcast. There is so much news to talk about. Uh, The main focuses, as you heard in this episode, are going to be William Barr's handling of the Roger Stone case, how Donald Trump interfered with that, uh, and how he, how his tweets, again, are just sort of being the outspoken interventionism within the, the or informal inter- interventionism within the United States judicial system, and also uh, we'll talk about the 2020 New Hampshire results and how billionaire candidates like Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg are spending astronomical amounts of money in order to sort of uh, make themselves more well-known, and whether or not it's working. But, of course, we will begin with uh, Mr. William Pelham Barr. To remind you, he is the current Attorney General of the United States. He succeeded uh, Jeff Sessions, and, of course, he was appointed by Trump. Very involved in the Mueller days, uh, Mr. Barr was. He was initially looked as uh, looked at as being aware of alleged activity with the Trump-Ukraine uh, investigation in the early days of impeachment. And he also <clears throat> shares many of views that Trump has Mr. Barr previously, and not consecutively, but he served under George Bush 41's administration. He's sort of a traditionally conservative lawyer who has a lot of legal power in Washington by virtue of his title. Um, I mean, his office is at the helm of all things legal in Washington D.C. and nationally. And the reason I am talking about him, and the reason he is in the news as of recent, is because Roger Stone. Because of Roger Stone, you remember him? He's the he's the Nixon-loving wacky political consultant who was indicted and and found guilty on uh, all combined seven counts of witness tampering and lying to Congress. The reason he's back in the headlines, the reason Stone is back in the headlines, is because the time has come for Mr. Stone to be sentenced. It was originally recommended by the Department of Justice that Stone should be sentenced for between seven and nine years in prison, or as The Hill put it, as quoting from the Justice Department's uh, court filing, They say, quote, In a court filing to federal district judge in Washington ahead of Stone's February 20th sentencing, the department said longtime Trump associate uh, Roger Stone should be punished in accordance with sentencing guidelines, which recommend between 87 and 108 months, the equivalent of seven and nine years. You can read the entire DOJ DOJ filing detailing what he did, uh, and also with the indictment as well, at j-dewardy.com slash Stone DOJ. Anyway, Uh, Trump sort of thought that 7 to 9 years, 87 to 108 months, is an exorbitant amount of time for the 67-year-old self-proclaimed dirty trickster. So instead of keeping that thought to himself, or, you know, trying to maybe consult his legal team about potential options, maybe even a pardon once he's in jail, which has been talked about widely since even before he was indicted, or maybe a little bit after he was indicted, instead of doing that, he took to Twitter and attacked the length of Stone's sentencing by advising Bill Barr, the functional the head of the, the functional head of the DOJ, saying on Twitter, "quote uh, this." Er, so he's retweeting Chuck Ross, uh, who is a uh, reporter over at the um, Daily Caller. Uh, he bro- broke the news about Roger Stone, not, I don't know, I don't think it was the first one, but he, Donald Trump, for whatever reason, chose to retweet him. Um, Chuck Ross's tweet says, Prosecutor- prosecutors recommend up to nine years in prison for Roger Stone. They call an election interference a deadly adversary, even though Stone was never accused of working with Russian Russians or WikiLeaks. Donald Trump responds to that news on Twitter by saying, quote, this is a horrible and very unfair situation. The real crimes were on the other side and nothing happens to them. Cannot allow this miscarriage... Of justice. So, Trump is not a lawyer, he is not anyone to even have any role in interfering with the Justice Department's ruling, with the judicial system of the United States, but this tweet sent ripples in Washington both internally and externally within the media and within not in the media. The president is sort of indirectly communicating with his appointed subordinate in a public platform for all of America to see. So it really puts Barr, the guy in charge of this entire thing, who has been notably loyal to Trump throughout all of this, throughout the Mueller investigation, through through Ukraine, through all of these things. He's been incredibly loyal to to Trump. And it's all sort of been uh, from what the from what the public has seen behind the scenes. Like I mean they could have called each other, they could have, you know, talked about this is our strategy, but Barr has been pretty quiet about this sort of thing, and now Trump just felt the urge to tweet out to the public that Roger Stone's sentencing is way too long. So it, of course, begs the question, what did Mr. Barr do? It's sort of an interesting, very unprecedented situation to have a president publicly recommend the changing of a sentencing that he has uh, very close to direct involvement with. So what did Mr. Barr do? He went over to Mr. Pierre Thomas, a fabulous reporter and a very good interviewer, He's ABC News' senior justice correspondent. And he went over there to respond to the president's tweet. Here is what Mr. Barr said in an exclusive interview with ABC. And uh, very interesting sort of, uh, I guess, comeback or explanation from Mr. Barr. Very well put, in my opinion.
1: I had made a decision that I thought was fair and reasonable uh, in this particular case. And uh, once the tweet occurred, the question is, well uh now what do i do and uh do you go forward with what you think is the right decision or do you pull back because of the tweet and that just sort of illustrates how disruptive these tweets can be so you're saying you have a problem with the tweets yes well i have i have a problem uh, with some of some of the the tweets to have public statements and tweets made about the department uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department and about judges before whom we have cases uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the, in the department uh, that we're doing our work with integrity.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a very valid point. This is probably basically those exact words, except for maybe some change in the application. It's probably what a lot of Trump senior advisors say, and they're not even in his cabinets. Of course, they can't risk that because they don't want to risk their jobs or their reputation or their relationship with the president. Uh, But Bill Barr is no senior advisor. He is not some, you know, person on the White House's payroll. He is a cabinet member, and he's the appointed attorney general of the United States. So in theory, he's even risking more here. I mean, the Attorney General is pretty close up there in the line of succession. And, uh, you know, he, it's a very senior role. Surprisingly, though, Trump did not uh, attack Barr for saying that his tweets make it impossible for him to get work done. Wouldn't you think, like, if someone said your tweets, the, the sort of the mainstay of your, president, your, your presidency, the way that your, your primary form of uh, off-the-cuff communication... Saying that 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 sort of emblem of your presidency is disruptive to my line of work. Wouldn't you think Trump would get mad at that? Well, he did, I think. I mean, inside, very deep, you could tell. But he did not publicly say anything about it. Uh, so what Trump did, uh, very manipulatively, is cut or tweeted out a part of the interview in which Barr said uh, the following right here.
1: President has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case.
0: So then he tweeted out and he he was very proud that Barr was very proud reasonably that Trump did not uh, do anything or or formally intervene in a case or ask him formally to do it. Uh, So Trump said, "Okay, well, that's great. But he tweeted out, in response to Barr saying that, that, quote, and this is Trump tweeting this, quote, this does not mean that I do not have, as president, the legal right to do so. I do, but I have so far chosen not to. So far, right? And that's good. I mean, it, there there is a certain level of independence within the, the Justice Department and the way this government is structured, and we'll talk about that in a second, but... Uh, in effect, the the Justice Department and the the President of the United States maintain a very healthy relationship if they uh, sort of are uh, uh, independent of one another in terms of decision-making. So that's sort of interesting. What's, al- what's also interesting, and, and this is getting a little bit less attention in terms of analysis, is that the President didn't even alert Barr or evidently anyone with control over Stone's situation before he sent out the tweet. In other words, Trump didn't let anyone with control over his sentencing know that he was feeling this way, uh, and he had such an issue with uh, his associate and very close friends' uh, sentencing.
1: Did you talk to the president at all about your decision regarding the recommendations? Never. Anybody from the White House call you to try to influence? No. Nope. I, I I have not discussed the Roger Stone case at the White
0: House. So, you know, I mean sort of a curveball there, right? I mean, you would think that there would be some sort of internal discussion. A lot of times, that's how these things have been handled in the past. Uh, the president will say, you know, I mean, and a lot of times, they don't even, they don't, the president or anyone with control over this sort of thing, especially on a more local level with the state's attorney and stuff, uh, they, they will not they will not intervene in these early stages before the person is actually in prison. What they'll end up doing is pardoning or say, taking some sort of prosecutorial action in the beginning to to intervene with the end the the end date of one sentencing, and we'll get to reaction from the other side in a second. But first, did you know that you can get this podcast' most recent content in your inbox every single week? If you go to j slash newsletter type in your email, you'll automatically be added to the list. Do not hesitate; always being informed and receive a healthy dose of subjective monologue on current events from. The Jay Doherty Podcast. Go to j dohertycom newsletter to sign up for free today. Okay, so there has been much external reaction from both sides on this. Nancy Pelosi, the, the critic-in-chief of the Trump administration and Trump himself, went out to her podium and claimed that Trump abused his power, in effect, by, by advising William Barr indirectly and publicly to shorten Stone's sentencing. This has been getting... A uh, decent amount of attention considering that Pelosi sort of the, the, the chief spokesman or spokesperson for spokeswoman, I guess you could say, for the Democratic Party.
2: We also saw the president this week demonstrate once again uh, that he does have has no respect for the rule of law, his assault on the rule of law by engaging in political interference in the sent- sentencing of his associate. Roger Stone indicated an obstruction investigation into Trump-Russia ties and uh, witness tempering. This is an abuse of power that the president is again trying to manipulate federal law enforcement to serve his political interests.
0: So I think it's a bit hyperbolical to suggest that Trump, like, directly abused his power, as in the crime of abuse of power, which has <laughs> obviously been quite the issue in this administration, um only because of the way the government is actually structured. So for the most part, uh, particularly when you are comparing other facets of bureaucracy to the Department of Justice, uh, the Department is not the Department of Justice is not exactly the most independent of the President. Uh, that is to say, that they generally function without the influence of, of the President, which is the best way it can function. It's the most healthy relationship that these two uh, facets of government can establish, in my opinion. Uh, but as a result of a 2007 House bill, The president is allowed to intervene, quote, if only, where it is important uh, for the performance of the president's duty and where it is appropriate from a law enforcement perspective. So it is not exactly important for the president's duties. I would say it's important for the president personally, and that's why he did not intervene directly in this case as of yet. He has the right to pardon Stone, and he was actually asked whether or not he was going to do that, uh, you know, uh, in the future. We'll get to that in a second, but in a sense, it is not an abuse of power. Uh, going off of what Nancy Pelosi said, it's not an abuse of power uh, directly. Even though it's really stupid, it's very disruptive to due process. It is very unhealthy to publicly make Barr feel uncomfortable, and uh, you know, not it puts him in a very, very, very difficult situation because he has to serve and be loyal to the person who appointed him. He represents the the genuine interests of the lawyers and the people who work in the Department of Justice. So, it is incredibly disruptive and just totally inappropriate for Trump to do this. And, and, you know, there's so many reasons that it's wrong. The chief of those reasons being that it fundamentally disrupts the basic structure of the U.S. government. I mean, there's, uh, as you learn in, like, sixth grade, or maybe even earlier, there is (laughs) the the legislative branch, the judicial branch, and the executive branch. Trump is in the executive. You cannot intervene with the judicial system. It is a fundamental disruption of checks and balances to do that. Now, there are much stronger ways to intervene in this. I mean, it could have been a lot worse, but a lot less confusion and a lot less talk, chatter, and sort of mayhem would have been caused if Trump just, once again, kept his mouth shut and stopped using Twitter. There are a lot of benefits that this country, this presidency, this administration, and Trump's re-election would face if Trump literally just stopped tweeting. I I know I say, I say this all the time, but going off of his insolent tweets, insolent tweets, it's sort of ridiculous. Uh, Trump said this about pardoning Mr. Stone and and many other things in the Oval Office, sitting uh, across from the the president of Ecuador the other day.
3: He was treated very badly. Nine years recommended by four people that perhaps they were Mueller people. I don't know who they were, prosecutors, and they. Uh, I don't know what happened. They all hit the road pretty quickly. Nobody even knows what he did. And what they did is a disgrace. And hopefully it'll be treated fairly. Everything else will be treated fairly. Are are you considering a pardon? I don't want to say that yet, but I tell you what, people were hurt viciously and badly by these corrupt people. And I want to thank, if you look at what happened, I want to thank the Justice Department. For seeing this, this horrible thing, so and I didn't speak to him, speech. by the way, just so you understand. They saw the horribleness of a nine-year sentence for doing nothing. You have murderers and drug addicts, they don't get nine years. Nine years for doing something that nobody even can define what he did.
0: So the lawyers that he's referring to in the beginning part, uh, we'll talk about in just one second. And then the second part, you heard him asking uh, for a re- reporter asking about a pardon. The lawyers he's referring to in this case were the four that originally handed the prosecutorial duties of the Roger Stone case. They all withdrew from the case formally uh, because it was, you know, the whole thing was just uh, just dwarfed by Trump. Uh, and they withdrew in, uh, from the case in protest of how their superiors were being influenced and the har- how their hard work would be in a way tarnished as a result from, inter- as, uh, from interventionism from the president or intervention from the president. And these lawyers, and just like the defense lawyers on these cases, they work very hard, especially when you're on a government payroll. I mean, these are very accomplished lawyers. I'm not going to say that they're, you know, there's definitely not political tint in it. I mean, there was tons of political tint in the Mueller report. You read the entire thing. It's incredibly biased. Uh, and you can tell that. And that's just how the, the, the FBI works. That is how the, the Department of Justice works. And it's sort of, just the way the entire country works. As Josh uh, Gerstein and Daniel Lippman over at political say, quote, the sudden withdrawal of the entire prosecution team assigned to Stone's case, including two veterans of former special Counsel Robert Mueller's office following the Justice Department's decision to back away from the government's original sentencing proposal seemed to embolden and energize Trump. A jubilant president took to Twitter Tuesday night to celebrate uh, and settle more scores. He says, all starting to unravel within the ridiculous nine-year sentence recommendation, tweeting Catherine Herridge, a reporter over at CBS. Mr. Gerstein, Mr. Lipman, Lipman say, quote, The president's tweets fueled an ongoing furor among Justice Department veterans and Democrats that broke out earlier in the day after the department backed off a recommendation for a lengthy prison term for Stone, a longtime informal political advisor to Trump. So, you know, it's just crazy that, that that this is how this is how justice is carried within this country i mean the, the you know there was a strong case built on both sides i think roger stone is just uh, really out there sort of um looking to be punched and he finally got punched and and someone again tried to save him And I think this is also just further evidence in my general case as to why, as I said before, Trump's approval ratings would jump 10% if he just stopped using Twitter. Even his defender-in-chief, Mitch McConnell, basically the equivalent of the opposing side of Nancy Pelosi within the Senate, the Senate Majority Leader, at the moment, said that he is tweeting, uh, said that tweeting about Roger Stone, the Roger Stone case was a bad move overall for Donald Trump, and it was a bad move overall for the country. He said this uh, over on uh, Brett Baer's special report show on Fox News this week.
1: Yeah, My reaction is the president made a great choice when he picked Bill Barr to be attorney general. I think the president should listen to his advice. So you have a problem with the president's tweeting as well? I think that the attorney general says it's getting in the way of doing his job. Maybe the president should listen to the attorney general. So, do you think the tweet about his opinion on the Roger Stone sentencing recommendations is inappropriate political interference? Well, the, the, the Attorney General has said it's making it difficult for him to do his job. I think the President ought to listen to the Attorney General, who's an outstanding uh, law enforcement officer. He's a top person in in the country. The President made a wise selection in picking Bill Barr. I they I got to listen to him. Exactly,
0: and uh, you know, he. Again, Bill Barr was um, hated in the beginning by Democrats, of course. He sort of was—I uh, mean, he's, he's actually a pretty good lawyer overall, uh, as we've seen. He's a, he's a pretty good attorney general. He's appointed twice. He's sort of a traditional conservative guy who just wants to serve his country, in my opinion. And I think he's, he's a, an honest person, and it really does not help any attorney general— no matter honest or dishonest when well actually it's probably it's a little bit easier when you're dishonest but <laughs> for the attorney general but the uh current attorney general who is he seems to be very honest it does not help his job puts him and his staff and all the people who are all on the taxpayer's dollar being paid in a very 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 awkward position so the question is what is going to happen next and we really don't know uh, you know, they, they they cut back the sentence. Um, Roger Stone is just a funny guy. He's sort of, I mean, if you want to hear all my thoughts about him, you can go way back, way, way back to the beginning of days of Mueller when he was raided by the FBI. Remember CNN got that camera out there in front of his house in Palm Beach? Oh, those were the days. Um, yeah, so if you want to hear my thoughts, I think it's episode 46, 47, which is so, so long ago. Uh, if you want to hear my thoughts about Roger Stone and hear more about all of what I talked about, about Mr. Stone, we're going to come back talk about uh, the 2020 presidential race. Bernie and Buttigieg are leading in the New Hampshire primary. We have Republicans uh, out turning for Donald Trump in the New Hampshire primary. We're going to talk about all of that and more coming up on episode number 122 of the J. Doherty Podcast. This is the J. Doherty Podcast.
3: Everybody.
0: Highlights, New Hampshire primary is over and the results are basically in. Very similar results to what we saw with Pete Buttigieg, uh, Bernie Sanders. They are leading the, the the race. They continue to lead the race. There's a fabulous graphic uh, over at the Washington Post with full analysis of the, the final results and also who voted for who in the presidential race. Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, leading in the very, very liberal Category of voters: the very progressive, radical, sort of pro-socialist Democrats, in in some pro-communist Democrats who want to see radical change within the government. He's also leading with between ages in eighteen to twenty-nine, so a large sector, in, sect, geez, sector of the millennial vote and young in people that are below thirty. He's also leading with with income with people who have an income of less than $50,000, which is pretty interesting. A lot of them also want to see radical change within the government health care plan, according to the Washington Post. Um, uh, union households, many people, uh, I mean, he's leading there. Many people th- who see health care as a top issue and they want radical transformation within that. They think it makes sense that his plan costs $32.6 trillion and everyone is forced to go on it. And then he's also leading with people who have no college degree, which is also extremely interesting. I mean, Bernie Sanders has for long been the rhetorical equivalent of Donald Trump of the Donald Trump of the left. He is, of course, not as left as I mean, he's not as right as Trump is. Wait, okay, I oh, got I gotta this gotta, gotta, gotta get this right. Donald Trump is less far right than Bernie Sanders is far left, but in terms of rhetoric and the way they speak and the way they advertise themselves. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have very, very similar, sort of crazy, very outspoken, speak their mind, super consistent, but sort of not, uh, you know, not all in line, I suppose you could say. The big difference between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump is that Bernie Sanders is the most honest Democratic candidate that is currently running, probably the most honest and consistent person within Congress, even though he hasn't done much. But Donald Trump is just a proven pathological liar. Judge, on the other hand, is sort of the opposite. He's getting all the moderate support. People who prefer a candidate to beat Donald Trump. And, as I expected, as I said last episode, he's getting a lot of support from people who have an income of $100,000 or higher. He's getting the support of not like not radically progressive, moderate people, moderate Democrats, who are very well-educated and very successful. Amy Klobuchar sort of getting the votes that don't go to Pete Buttigieg. People who are very religious. A lot of Republicans are flocking towards Amy Klobuchar who don't want to be who don't like Trump, who don't like Tom or who don't like Bill Weld <laughs> if you even count him as a presidential candidate. And a lot of people uh over 65 are voting for Amy Klobuchar. Theoretically, she is actually the best candidate in my opinion. She's the best balance. Pete Buttigieg comes after, and Joe Biden comes third in my opinion. So those are the percentage points in terms of demographics. The New Hampshire results just cut and dry. Bernie Sanders, and we'll start with Democrats, of course. Bernie Sanders has nine delegates, 25%, 25.7% of the vote, 76,324 votes. Pete Buttigieg, nine delegates just like Bernie Sanders, but less of the vote with 24.4%, 72,457. Amy Klobuchar, six delegates, 19.8%. Crazy amount for Amy Klobuchar, by the way. I mean, that's that's really good success for her. Very clear support within white voters and religious voters. 58,796 votes for Ms. Klobuchar. Elizabeth Warren, huge steep drop, 9.2% with 27,387 votes. A bigger gut punch in New Hampshire for Joe Biden with only 8.4% of the vote, 24,921 voters going to him. Tom Steyer at 3.6% with 10,727 voters for him. So lots and lots of support for Bernie Sanders and for Pete Buttigieg. They are the progressive and the moderate. Those are the people who are gaining the traction. What a lot of pundits and uh, networks and everyone fail to talk about is who actually comes out to support the other side in these in these caucuses? Of course, there's going to be nearly monolithic support for uh, the incumbent. No matter how many people you know vote, there's always going to be, unless the incumbent really, really is terrible. There's going to be a lot of support for the incumbent if, if the if their term has not expired yet. Donald Trump at 85.6% of the vote. The others were Bill Weld and ins with one hundred twenty-nine thousand six hundred ninety-six votes and twenty-two delegates, and um, it's sort of crazy, uh, in my opinion, that he was able to get that much support. And he had a much, 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 much bigger turnout than Barack Obama did in New Hampshire. Barack Obama only had four hundred forty-eight thousand nine hundred seventy votes. He still had eighty-two percent, meaning Trump just beat him by you know three percent or something like that. In terms of people who came out to vote, but I mean, in terms of people who actually came out to support Trump, he has maybe two and a half times more support than Obama did when Obama was the incumbent running against Mitt Romney in um, in 2012. Romney had 97,591 votes, with 39 percent of New Hampshire voting Republicans voting for Mitt Romney. That is not that cut and dry this year unfortunately or maybe fortunately who knows Pete Buttigieg and Amy or sorry Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders you know 25.7 and 24.4 it's not like one has 39 and one has 12. it's very very different than what we saw in 2012 and in 2016. huge 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 monolithic or I guess you could say duolithic support if that's even a thing for Bernie Sanders and uh Hillary Clinton and then the rest like lincoln chafee and and all the others they they all got very few support but getting big big numbers and big, big support for Republicans compared to past elections, especially within Donald Trump, meaning that Republicans, even though they knew that Donald Trump registered Republicans within the state of New Hampshire, even though they knew that Donald Trump is going to be the incumbent, there's no way that he could not continue to be the nominee of the Republican Party. He has the most money, the most donors. He's the incumbent president. The economy is booming. There's no way that he will not be the nominee. They went out and still voted for him. So there's still lots of support within New Hampshire. And as we saw within Iowa for Donald Trump, within the Republican Party, not not overall, but in terms of the Republican Party, lots of Republicans continue to support President Trump. So, really interesting. The Democrat support is a little bit more spread out. It's not going to be that way for long, but as it is right now, I mean, I think we'll have a better idea at Super Tuesday who's going to be the nominee. But Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are the people who are leading in these caucuses, Bernie Sanders, he narrowly won against Buttigieg, there's a really, really good Washington Post uh, analysis, as I said, which you can look at, we'll have it on the website, um, again, Bernie Sanders, the equivalent of Donald Trump on the left, Hit all of his policy ideas make perfect sense if you don't know better, in my opinion, and they, I mean, having Medicare for all, having your student loans completely paid off, having, you know, everything be free. That, I mean, I want that, right? Everyone, every single person wants that, but it is not a theory, like, it doesn't, it works in theory, It just as we've seen in hundreds of cases throughout the, the history of the world, socialism does not work, and it will not work, it will massively fail on a grand scale like America. Pete Buttigieg came in second, and the, again, we ask why? Well, it's because 93% of the state of New Hampshire is white. It's the same reason he won Iowa. 92 point something percent of Iowa was white. He's a phenomenal candidate and one who should and could do really, really good things. But as of right now, even though he has done outstandingly well in these recent polls, he's likely to have minimal support in the next primary, which is in South Carolina on February 28th. That, That state is not as white as New Hampshire and Iowa have been. And I think the Buttigieg campaign is figuring out what they can do to improve numbers within the minority communities within these states. I don't, I don't like to talk about race in in the way that I'm going to here, and it's just unfortunately how you know uh, political predictions and analysis works. But as of the Census Bureau 2012, the latest one, 68.5 percent of South Carolina was white, 27.1 percent black, and that was the second largest demographic, racial demographic within the state of South Carolina. And that's what other candidates like Joe Biden or praying for. We'll get to Joe Biden in a second, but I'm going in order here of the winners. Amy Klobuchar was in uh, in third place after Buttigieg. Phenomenal candidate. The New York Times endorsement really, really helped her, I think. She appeals to a religious, non-Biden, non-Buttigieg crowd who want moderate policies internationally and domestically, particularly on healthcare, and second to that, foreign policy. You know, with Iran and the Middle East, Amy Klobuchar has proven to be an asset on the debate stage. She has clearly articulated all of her points, you know, to her campaign. Uh, and it's basically her entire campaign has <laughs> been run without any major issues. I mean, if you really, really stop and think about it, Bernie Sanders had, had the issue with a woman could never be president. Pete Buttigieg supposedly had, had race issues internally with his campaign. Elizabeth Warren was on the giving end of that woman attack and a pro- also a proven liar. Joe Biden has Hunter's situation to worry about, and there's there's a, just a slew of previous quotes that, that uh, could prove bi- damaging to Biden's campaign. So by that virtue... Amy Klobuchar is automatically the least controversial and theoretically the most electable candidate. If you really think about it, I mean, she's she not maybe not the best for the country. Probably not enough experience, you could argue, or not enough right experience. Um, but in theory, she is the best balance between uh, Republicans who want change and you know from Donald Trump and Democrats who want more moderate. I mean it's, it's it's she's a very good balance in my opinion, is basically what I'm saying. And I think the majority of the country would be happy with with her being the, the president. Elizabeth Warren uh is next. Very interesting article written uh by Joey Garrison over in USA Today. He says with her en- with her usual energy and bounce Elizabeth Warren, a U.S. senator from Massachusetts, told them that she is a candidate who can take the fight to President Donald Trump. Pews were filled, people cheered, a rainbow flag hung from the balcony in the back. As Warren ripped Trump the influence of money in politics and corruption with ease and clarity, the scene gave an impression of a liberal to be reckoned with. But in conversations with several of the New Hampshire voters at Warren's last Get Out the Vote event before the voting started, it was clear that they weren't fully committed. Some were last-minute shopping, and with Warren sliding in the polls, they were also considering the front-runner Senator Bernie Sanders and the two surging Midwesterners, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar and former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. So this again proves that demographics don't necessarily matter within within uh, caucuses and within Democratic primaries. A lot of it actually matters of where the candidates come with come from. Sorry, I mean you know. Um, Pete Buttigieg, South Bend, Indiana, Midwest. Amy Klobuchar, Minnesota, Southwest or Midwest. And and of course Elizabeth Warren, Massachusetts. So she had disappointing results in New Hampshire, particularly compared to Iowa. She appeals to, uh, as we've seen in the polls, lots of women really like uh, Elizabeth Warren. Strong support for within uh, feminists, within people who want change, who don't want to go. Uh, in the Sanders direction for whatever reason. They want a radical change. They want very extreme left policies. And they just like Elizabeth Warren. She's sort of the alternative, the, the secondary alternative to Bernie Sanders is the way I like to think about it. She got 18% in Iowa, third place. She got half of that, 9% in New Hampshire, in third place. It doesn't really look hopeful for Elizabeth Warren at this point. Uh, in fact, I would say that if she doesn't dramatically improve, which is going to prove to be impossible, she is just sort of out of the race. Uh, who also does not look hasn't looked good but probably does look hopeful is Joe Biden. So this depends of course all on the black and brown vote in South Carolina and other states because he is definitely not getting support much support in these heavy white states like New Hampshire and Iowa so far. I mean in his words he took a gut punch in Iowa and he did the same in New Hampshire. Here is Joe Biden at a campaign event before the ABC debate in New Hampshire a couple uh, weeks ago or not weeks ago eh, about a week ago reflecting. On Iowa.
2: I am not going to sugarcoat it. We took a gut punch in Iowa. The whole process took a gut punch. But look, uh, this isn't the first time in my life I've been knocked down. And that's true. One of the things that I've actually really liked from the
0: Biden campaign is that they're generally transparent about uh, what they talk about and the way they talk about it. I'm not speaking of Biden's record or anything, but I mean, I just think the way that Biden, the, the way that Biden speaks out and, and says, look, we didn't do really well here, but we're going to do better there. That is something that is really, really good, and that is something that he did similar to the uh, New Hampshire debate stage as of recent, where he basically admitted that his campaign needs the votes of states with more minorities, and this is widely recognized in the states that he's trying to earn support from. In fact, there was a very funny uh, clip uh, in the debate where he's saying, "Who um, who can win Pennsylvania? Who can win Florida? Who can win South Carolina? Who can win Nevada? All these things, and it's like... All the candidates raised their hand. I mean, he was asking it rhetorically because he has huge support within black and brown communities within those states and nationally. But that's, I mean, it was just, he, he willingly admits that he is surging within uh, those racial demographics. I mean, even, even if you read local newspapers, uh, such as the Tampa Bay Times in Florida, here's one article that is titled, Florida Insiders Predict the Democratic Nominee. It's Joe Biden. By Steve uh, Cotorno over at the Tampa Bay Times, it says, quote, the Tampa Bay Times asks its rosters of politicos, campaign insiders, lobbyists and fundraisers, former elected leaders and other experts to predict who will be the Democratic nominee for president. The top choice with almost half the vote, it was clear. It's Joe Biden. Biden remains so competitive because he still has the name recognition and plenty of goodwill from his eight years serving as President Barack Obama's number two. He's also the only candidate consistently pulling well among African-American voters until someone demonstrates that they can win where diversity is measured in, in something other than shades of pale. That will be a strong selling point for Biden. That is a perfect paragraph and very well, well-written sentence. Sort of sums up the way that this the entire election system is so flawed. And the way this analysis has to be done, but it shouldn't be done. I mean, the top 10 states with the highest black populations within the country are Texas, Georgia, Florida, New York, California, North Carolina, Illinois, Maryland, Virginia, and Louisiana. Biden has record poll numbers in there. You saw Florida was, I think, number three. Is that what I said? Yeah, number three. So he has record support there. And the Tampa Bay Times admits it. And I think it's actually, if you really, really want to understand the way that states are voting. Don't look at national polls that say that this is from a state. Look at state polls, look at local polls, look at polls from actual local newspapers as opposed to national publications who are doing polls on, um, you know, s- small communities. I mean, so it, does, it hasn't looked good for Biden, statistically, uh, but he has lots of room in terms of prim- primary numbers to recognize that his campaign is living off of two things. The first, of course, is the minority vote, which as we've seen from the polls, he's surging within black and brown communities nationwide. He also seems to be a voice of balance between radical socialism and moderate capitalism. And again, he was very transparent about that on the debate stage in New Hampshire. He relies very heavily on the fact that he has, you know, 7,000 years in, in Congress and also that he was the vice president of the United States. He relies very heavily on, it, on his experience, and that's part of the reason that his debate is, or that his candidacy nationally is not doing well. I mean, he has sort of this cocky attitude that I'm going to, you know, I'm the vice president, I'm the establishment politician, I'm going to win, just like Hillary Clinton did. But this reiteration that he said on the debate stage in New Hampshire really helped his campaign and also compared him to his most immediate and moderate competition, Mr. Pete Buttigieg. Here is what I'm talking about.
2: Well, you know, uh, you know that uh, with regard to Senator Sanders, the uh, president wants very much to stick a label on every candidate. We're gonna not only have to win this time, we have to bring along the United States Senate. And uh, Bernie's labeled himself, not me, a democratic socialist. I think that's the label that the president's gonna lay on everyone running with Bernie if he's a nominee. And uh, Mayor Buttigieg uh, is a great guy and a real patriot. He's a a mayor of a small city who uh, has done some good things but has not demonstrated he has the ability to, and we'll soon find out, to get a broad scope of support across the spectrum, including African-Americans and Latinos.
0: Okay, so, he, I mean, he could have just said all that without, yes, you mean you just cut out all the sentences before the last one, but he didn't. And, again, you could see, you could even feel his cockiness. He said, he very, very blatantly said that we need a candidate who can beat Donald Trump. I am that candidate. But what he fails to recognize is that, I mean, there's two steps to this process. There is the primary and then the general election. You need to get through the primary in order to get to the general. It is not like, okay, now it's, you know, let's pluck Biden down on a debate stage against Trump so he can beat him in national polls, because in theory, yeah, he probably could do that. But it all depends on how well he does in the primaries in terms of his campaign and how well he does in terms of policy in terms of the primary. So for Biden, it's sort of the opposite uh, trajectory of Buttigieg. Buttigieg started off really strong with white voters in New Hampshire and Iowa. People think that he's going to do really well in the future. Uh, Biden did not, but he will end very strong with black and brown voters in South Carolina, Pennsylvania, and another majority, or not majority, but large populations and large support uh, with Biden within uh, minority communities. Uh, The next guy in this poll in this New Hampshire uh, deal is Tom Steyer. So why the heck is Tom Steyer running? He only got 3.6% of the vote and zero delegates in New Hampshire. And even though he's worth about $1.6 billion, an estimate, he is constantly agreeing with Bernie Sanders, right? And Bernie Sanders famously hates billionaires. He hates corporate companies. He hates basically anyone who has more than $50 million, which is really just amusing. Here is a, a sample of topics that he agreed with Bernie Sanders on during the debates. I mean, again, this guy's a billionaire. Bernie hates billionaires. Steyer publicly agrees with the guy who hates billionaires. By Transitive Property himself on the debate stage. This is uh, presented by Now That's News.
2: I got to agree with Bernie Sanders. And I got to, Senator, I do. And I don't think there's any question, but that the only way that we're going to beat him actually is the way that Bernie Sanders said. If we win, we can get the right thing, Bernie.
0: I mean, that's kind of funny. Steyer is only polling at about 2% nationally, according to 538's average of polls. This is from opensecrets.org. However, Steyer is in second place at 15% in South Carolina and third place. At 12% in Nevada, according to recent polls conducted by Fox News, Steyer jumped 11 points in South Carolina since Fox's latest poll in October and 7 points in Nevada since Fox's last poll in November. Steyer has outspent his rivals in South Carolina and Nevada by a significant margin. In Nevada, second-highest-spending Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders only spent $147,000, and in South Carolina, the second-highest-spending Democrat uh, Pete Buttigieg only spent about $1 million. Of course, he's not comparing as within all things to Mr. Michael Bloomberg in South Carolina and Nevada Bloomberg is focusing on national advertising and Super Tuesday states which we'll get to in a second and how much how ridiculous amounts of money he's spending on advertising in for Super Tuesday. Uh so that's where Mr. Bi- Mr. B- uh, Steyer stands in terms of primary numbers and the, how he's spending. Mike Bloomberg, oh So much money. The most recent example of Bloomberg's astronomical spending is on Super Tuesday, March 3rd. The states that are in Super Tuesday are ones that he needs to gain support in, because basically, I mean, Super Tuesday is a ginormous uh, determining factor in how well you will do in the primaries. It's March 3rd. The states within them are Alabama, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia. Large amounts of states tons of states being in this in Super Tuesday. So, Bloomberg has tons of money, right? And he's going to spend like crazy. He's actually spending 129 million dollars just on Super Tuesday advertising alone. We'll talk about that compares to other candidates in in 1 second. But he has tons of money. He can obviously, you know, just splatter this money wherever he wants. But the one thing he will have trouble doing is building up cred- credible endorsements. As of of recent, he's partnered with, you know, his elitist friends, not to 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 just donate, I mean, because he's self-funding himself, but just to have the support of others. A recent article in CNBC by Brian Schwartz, really good one, it says, Dozens of elite business leaders have joined Michael Bloomberg's uh, army, quote-unquote, of surrogates to help him win the Democratic presidential nomination. Former Mo- Morgan Stanley CEO John Mack said that he's fully committed to Mike. Mack was on a guest list for a Biden fundraiser in New York, but he didn't go because he backs Bloomberg. <laughs> Since Bloomberg is self-funding his campaign, the camp uh, the support from these business leaders could not take money off the board uh, for other Democratic candidates. I mean that's crazy, right? He's basically telling people his rich friends to go support him, not not financially, just you know publicly, as that guy did, John Mack. All of this spending has enraged the incumbent President Trump. They got into a Twitter war, Mr. Mr. Bloomberg and Mr. Trump. Uh, basically what happened was Donald Trump really stupidly insulted uh, Mike Bloomberg's heights. He says at 7.23 a.m. on February 13, 2020, just two days ago, Many Mike has a 5'4 mass of dead energy who does not want to be on the debate stage with these crazy professional politicians. No boxes, please. He hates crazy Bernie and well, with enough money possibly stop him. Sorry, and will with enough money possibly stop him. Bernie's people will go nuts. Mike Bloomberg very amusingly replies, quote, We know many of the same people in New York. Behind your back they laugh at you and call you a carnival barking clown. They know you inherited a fortune and squandered it with stupid deals and incompetence. I have the records and the re- record and the resources to defeat you, and I will. All right. I like it, Mr. Bloomberg. Uh, I don't like you, but I like the way you just you, spend, <laughs> you responded to that. Mike Bloomberg, again, worth about 60 something billion dollars, 62 billion dollars, spent 129 million dollars on Super Tuesday, advertising spending alone, Tom Steyer second to that with only about less than a quarter, with only 25 million. Sanders seven million, Warren seventy-one thousand, and effectively zero 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 for Biden, Buttigieg, and Klobuchar. So again, money is a huge part of this, and you know these candidates who have tons of money like Steyer and Bloomberg need to get endorsements. Bloomberg's actually been doing well, 22 endorsements so far. Biden, of course, leading in endorsements from Congress people, from from people who've known him for a long time. He has 54 total endorsements. He's leading. He has more he has more than double um, what uh, uh, Bloomberg has, who's number two, Biden number one in terms of endorsement. Uh, Warren has 14 endorsements Buttigieg has 10 Klobuchar has 9 and Senator Bernie Sanders only has 9 endorsements isn't that crazy he has the most individual donors in the history of American politics he has all these things he has tons of people liking him you know, from the general public but only 9 total endorsements why is that? because he basically has never gotten anything done <laughs> uh, in Congress never sponsored or been a part of any huge ginormous bill but he's maintained consistent philosophies, which really, really appeals to the people who are voting for him, or who are considering voting for him. I mean, it just makes sense, right? Interesting times this man lives in. The interesting times that he's campaigning in, right? Uh, before we close out, I just want to point out something that I found really, really interesting. Super funny question asked by the Associated Press. Highly recommend uh, looking it up. You can go to j-story.com slash Klobuchar or AP, no, sorry, AP twenty twenty. Um, Democratic presidential hopeful. This is from the AP. Democratic presidential hopefuls Amy, Amy Klobuchar and Tom Steyer were stumped when asked during a televised interview in Nevada to name the next the Mexican president. Right? I mean, this is a very good litmus test of of foreign policy knowledge. And something that they should all know. They should know the president uh, or the leader of almost every major country that, that the United States does deals with. I mean, th- there's a trilateral trade agreement <laughs> with the United States and Mexico. If you're running to, to to sort of manage that deal and you don't know the guy that you're going to be negotiating with, you are, uh, in effect, not qualified <laughs> to be president. So are any of these people qualified to be president by that definition? Probably not. Klobuchar, a three-term senator from Minnesota, responded, no. Not the first time. She remember she couldn't remember... Uh, Laura Kelly's name at the debate. Steyer, a billionaire businessman, replied, quote, I forgot. Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, was the only of the three who knew the answer, quote, Lopez Obrador, I hope, he said with a smile. So he did not know. So by that effect, uh, Pete Buttigieg is the most intellectually competent uh, candidate to be the president of the United States. If you asked Donald Trump that question in 2015 when he first announced there's absolutely no way on the planet that he would know that answer. <laughs> just saying. Really, really funny. Uh, highly recommend you go read that article. The AP does really good reporting. And uh, hopefully you like this podcast. If you do like it, please share it with your friends. I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, and you can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We're pretty much everywhere on the internet. If we're not where you normally get your podcast, just uh, tell me. Go to j slash contact. I we'll make sure we get up there, or we try to. I'd be happy to do that. Because it is something that we need to do. We need to meet, reach more people. We need to get the message out, right? We'll come back. up. Uh, we're going to talk about next week. This is the end of this episode. But next week, there's so much news to talk about. We're going to cover, be covering Super Tuesday. Coming up, so much news that has happened and so much news that is going to happen. And I am here very, very anxious and very, very happy to cover it. We'll talk about all of that and more... When we come back on episode number 123 of the podcast next week, you can uh, see show notes and episode highlights at j-dirty.com. Clips and highlights over at the thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate your listenership. Go to j-dirty.com. This is the J-Dirty Podcast. The J Doherty Podcast is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by J Doherty. The J Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright, J Doherty 2020. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions like the JDRC Politics Podcast for discussions on international politics or the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the J Doherty Podcast.
1: For all the latest world and national news on technology, politics, and more, listen live to the Jay Doherty Podcast on j Doherty.com.
2: D Media Network.